Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And just before we start today's interview with Mike Hopkins, I would like to announce that in a few weeks from now, we shall be joined by David Robertson, who is Minister of St. Peter's Free Church, Dundee, and he's also Director of the Solas Centre for Public Christianity, and he's a very well-known speaker, Christian speaker here in the UK, appearing on all sorts of things, um, such as Premier Christian Radio's uh, Unbelievable Programme with Justin Brearley, things like that, and he'll be joining us, as I say, in a few weeks for a and a on Christianity, so for about an hour, I shall be putting to him questions and comments from listeners that have been sent into TMR over the last two or three years about that sort of thing. But uh, of course, it would be great to give some fresh questions too. And of course, I'd like to give listeners this opportunity. So if you have anything you would like to ask him about the Christian faith or about the Bible or about belief in God in general, etc., then please do send an email into the show and uh, you can do that uh, just by using feedback at themindrenewed.com or you can use contact at themindrenewed.com both of those seem to work anyway um, but you can also use the form on the contact page at the website and uh, it would be great of course to have some listeners voices on the show as well uh, like we did in the past with the debates that we've had here so if you have a question or two that you'd like to ask and you are happy for your voice to appear on the show then please do use the voicemail facility at the website and uh, maybe you will be heard on TMR. Um, If you do that please do take a couple of seconds to say that you are happy for your voice to be included and of course I can't guarantee that every contribution will be used. I shall have to make decisions about what particular combination of questions will make a good show but I shall do my best to include as much as I can. But please do keep the questions sensible. Now, in a sense, I don't really need to ask that because I know that TMR listeners are, by and large, pretty level-headed people and, indeed, pretty intelligent people. But uh, there's always one or two. So to those one or two, please do keep it sensible. Anyway, so that's it. So um, we'll be speaking to David Robertson in a few weeks from now, and it will be great to hear from you if you do have anything that you would like to ask. So that's really all I wanted to say. Uh, So let's move on now to the interview with Mike Hopkins. And today I'm joined by Mike Hopkins, who, with his wife Kelly, runs Fight the Lies Radio, which you can find by visiting ftlradio.net. Or I suppose I should say they run Fight the Lies Network, which hosts three podcast series, FTL Radio, Pelotonabris, and Breaking the Silence. And no doubt Mike will tell us what those are about and what, what they mean in just a minute. Mike, thanks very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thank you for having me. It's a very much a pleasure and an honor to be on the show. I'm a longtime listener, so <laughs> it's really awesome to be on here. Well, it's good to speak with you, actually, and nice to have this chat after quite a while, really. I mean, we, we got into contact via Facebook, was it a couple of months ago, something like that? About two months, I would say, yes. Yeah, yeah, and we've been thinking about having this chat for a few weeks, so it's nice, actually, to get to the point of being able to do that. So, actually, do you want to tell us what the shows are that you run, and particularly what Pelotonabras means. <laughs> I had to ask my wife the same question. That's her show. Um, Fight the Lies is sort of was conceptualized out of our own personal experience and how we in our lives, both pre any spirituality and post, had embraced many lies in our lives. I think most people do to one extent or another, whether they're, you know, things derived from family members or education or 
a spirituality they're involved in or things on the mainstream media or whatever they may be. Um, the idea with the show was to sort of help people at least give them the tools or get them to begin to ask the questions to combat those lives that they may have embraced in their lives that cause detrimental effects. Mm. We have modeled that show for me and her to both host and do more or less a conversational format. But then we realized it would be nice to do our own personal shows. And so hers, Pale Tenebris, means dispel the darkness. And a lot of the things she talks about are emotional um, issues that people struggle with, especially things that women deal with, but also um, things in various spiritualities that she would like to just talk about and sort of help people mm. perhaps begin to, well, question those beliefs and maybe reject them if need be. And then my show, well, it <laughs> tends to be a bit less structured than hers. It's a bit more of me just having some idea off the top of my head and grabbing a mic and going on to sometimes a tedious extent about. <laughs> no, no, you, you shouldn't give that impression, actually, because the main reason why I invited you, I really wanted to speak to you on the show because of a particular podcast that you produced. Now, which one was it then? Breaking the Silence, wasn't it? Yes. You, you were talking about conspiracy theories and the Christian, and it was one of your monologues, but actually it was I thought it was really good. Um, you explored the issue of the, I suppose, the rationality of believing or not believing in various conspiracy theories from a Christian point of view, which, you know, as you know, that subject interests me very much. I think you handled that excellently. So it's, you know, it's great to speak with you. And we were, actually, when we first thought about this chat, we were going to have a conversation centred in that subject. But since then, you told me that you and your wife used to be part of a, a Christian congregation that became heavily involved in what's called the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, which you, you later left. And this is something I've heard of, but don't really know a great deal about. Um, what I have heard about it does concern me. So it's the New Apostolic Reformation, your experience with this congregation um, and the movement itself that we're going to be concentrating on today. So, Mike, let's start with a bit of personal information about you. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're concerned to minister in the way that you are? Well, um, as far as the mundane things, I work in the tech industry. Um, we produce sensors that are used in aerospace. It's a nice job. It's relaxing. It affords me a lot of time to uh, listen to podcasts and do research while I'm running lengthy tests. Cool. <laughs> anyways, uh, beyond that, I you know, sort of had the typical chaotic uh, life growing up in the States, you know, uh, through the 80s and 90s. And me and my wife, we met and got married about 13 years ago. And we both uh, had our various issues from our lives previous to knowing each other. And so understandably, early on in our marriage, we ran into issues that we thought we couldn't overcome, which led us to seeking, well, to put it simply, led us to seeking God. And that is what led us into the congregation we joined. So, so were either of you or both of you brought up in a Christian context, Christian households? Yes, we were, actually. My mother is always, well, as long as I've known her, which was since I was born, <laughs> she's a very strong believer. She raised me with those values, although I never, though I believed because I, you know, sort of always simply did believe that there was a God and that the Bible seems to be his message to us, I um, never, I suppose you would say, committed 
yeah. to anything. Yeah. And I dabbled in all sorts of spiritualities over the years. And my wife, she was as well, though her mom passed away at a very young age. And she had a very difficult life in her teenage years as a consequence. And she actually got extremely involved in the occult, right. uh, then came out of it before we ever met. But we both had that sort of spiritual baggage coming into our marriage, which led to some very, very uh, unusual circumstances, which were also a component of why our relationship had the issues that it did and that we realized we needed some help. So did you find that this congregation that you got involved with did actually help those issues in your lives? Well, I would say, to be honest with you, no, it did not at all. God did. Right. But as far as addressing some of those issues, to be honest with you, the sort of ideas and philosophies that they had embraced, as quite often is the case in mainstream Christianity they wouldn't even touch those sorts of topics. Like my wife did have what we would classically call the sort of abduction experience. Hmm. According to her, I was there as well, although I have no experience with it. I had a lot of knowledge about it because through the 90s, I was obsessed with that sort of topic as a lot of us were. You know, the X-Files was on and all of that. <laughs> yes, right. But, and so there were certain things about it that she had no knowledge of, but yet she described to me in her experiences, which told me, though at first I thought she was crazy when she told me this was going on, some of the things she told me made me take notice. So would she understand that now as having been a, a form of spiritual attack? Oh, absolutely. We believe it's right. what classically would be called fallen angels. But when we approached anyone in the congregation, especially leadership, with just trying to talk about that sort of thing, there was sort of a total unwillingness to even engage in the topic. Yeah. It's funny you should say that because having had a conversation with Reverend Robert Bennett fairly recently, he, he says that is quite a problem with a lot of churches that you know people, including pastors, just don't want to hear about that kind of thing. They may actually believe in the existence of the demonic realm, but uh, not really want to engage with how those things might affect our lives. And uh, that is a real problem in his view. Yes, I agree. I think it's twofold. One is that we don't have sort of a very big explanation in the Bible of those sorts of things. I mean, we have hints of it and some mentions yeah. of it. But I think the other thing is that there is a sort of teaching out there that would say that Satan and his followers don't really have any sort of power to do anything. So they would say that anything that does happen, it's just sort of this illusionary thing or imaginary no. thing, but also, honestly, this dovetails into our conversation because they sort of set themselves up in thinking that if the enemy can't do anything that has any real basis in reality, any power, then therefore anything that does happen must be from God. You sort of see the logical fallacy. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, I find that quite disturbing because, I mean, the kind of churches, well, particularly the church that we're most connected with, I think the majority of people would probably say that they didn't think that Satan and demons exist at all. <laughs> uh, and I do think that that is really quite dangerous, actually, because I think the doctrine of Satan is important in Christian theology, because otherwise, how do you explain events that are clearly supernatural that go against God's purposes? You have to say, well, or they're of God then, if there's no other spiritual being, or you start reinterpreting who or what God is in order to accommodate some sort of weird new agey kind of view of the universe or something like that. Either way, you end up with, with difficulties, yeah. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I also think it's sort of 
it negates our ability to understand and accept that there are certain things going on in the world covering, well, a lot of the topics, say, that you talk about or others do concerning the, quote, conspiracy topic. It leads to a lack of understanding as to how these things could occur, how there could be a consistent plan going over years and even centuries. If you take out the spiritual component, then it almost becomes unbelievable that human beings merely in and of themselves could orchestrate such a thing. Yes, so you certainly hit on something there that is central, that's true, to my podcast, because that is the unifying conspiracy, if you like, is it's on the spiritual level. So this congregation that you got involved with was not generally open to the kinds of concerns that you had about this kind of thing. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what that congregation was generally like? Well, um, it was a Messianic synagogue, which by definition, that is Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And the vast majority of Messianic congregations, though this is not a negative statement, but just to sort of further uh, define things, most of them, the average population is probably 10% Jewish and the rest are non-Jews. And there's an interesting sort of phenomenon out of that, though, because many of that 90% begin to convince themselves that they are Jewish because, well, I think it's a simple sort of psychological thing happening there. We're in this environment. This is the culture. And we want to be members of that culture. So we take on that persona. But anyways, as we went into it, it seemed like a wonderful thing. I mean, a lot of your sort of mainstream Christianity in America, you know, it has this sort of a lot of it doesn't go beneath sort of, I suppose I would say, surface level as far as biblical understanding goes. So when you go into a Messianic congregation like we did, you have, you know, these in-depth studies of Hebrew and, you know, certain understandings. And I'm not saying they're sort of esoteric understandings, but certain understandings just based upon the language and its structure that you don't get in uh, conventional teachings. I can understand what you mean. Yes, certainly. I mean, there has been, has there not, over the last, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years, this sort of rediscovery of the Jewishness of Jesus, and the church has had to start relearning that fact. I mean, that sounds incredible to many people, I'm sure, but nevertheless, there was that sort of Europeanization of Jesus. And, uh, you know, listening to Mike Heiser's podcast, where he goes into the Hebrew foundation to Christian faith, it's uh, really, really fascinating. You know, a lot can be gained from that. So, yeah, I completely understand. Well, certainly. I mean, it, it would be analogous to uh, a couple thousand years from now, someone finding some books in English and they're speaking a language that's completely foreign to us. And they look at our books and have some bizarre understandings <laughs> based upon their misconception of what we meant. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, the environment there, I mean, it was very pleasant at first. It was a uh, family feeling. You know, it wasn't a very large congregation at the time. It averaged maybe a couple hundred people on a very busy night. Um, that sounds like quite a big church to me. <laughs> well, and actually it does to me now because I prefer somewhere around 50, to be honest with you now. But, you know, in the environment in America today where you have this move toward 1,000 and 5,000 member of churches, it's considered rather small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like quite a healthy situation, actually, to have, say, a couple of hundred people. You can actually get to know people in the congregation. Well, and I think so. And leadership can be the shepherds that they're supposed to be versus sort of having this hierarchical structure that doesn't lend itself to uh, helping those in the congregation. And don't get me wrong. The As you had asked me earlier about whether they helped us with certain things, there were things that came out of attending there that certainly helped us. 
I think the mistake in our thinking at the time was that though we didn't consciously do it, we did attribute the help that God gave us to the congregation. And I think that's a natural human tendency to some extent. But, you know, we had very good friendships develop there and, and relationships. We got very involved in the congregation and men, various ministries. The first two years were very good there. And I had gotten to the point by then that I had thought, I'll never leave this place. You know, this is my family. This is a good thing. But when you come to the podcast that you made, the one that, you know, inspired me to say, hey, Mike, come on the show, um, you said that it was a cult in the end, you felt? Yes. What do you mean by that? Well, according to classical definition, um, a cult being, of course, a splinter group from a bigger sort of orthodox movement. And I would say that based upon having a charismatic leader whose word is the final word and not the word of God, but the leader's word, um, the desire to control your members there down to the words that are spoken in the congregation and outside of it. Um, examples in our situation would be even having uh, friends over for a Bible study. That was actually, we got to the point where they told us that was not allowed. It had to be under sanction from the leadership. Do you mean the actual people who attend the group had to be agreed by the leadership? Is that what you mean? I mean, like me actually deciding I want to invite people over, I would have to be approved to even do that, period. Cool. And then, Same. as you said, um, even the people coming over would have to be approved as well. Yeah. I would have to have operated under a very strict guideline to even do a Bible study, um, a guideline laid out by them. Mm. Other qualifiers, I would say, would be general, and I know this is sort of a vague term, but spiritual abuse. Um sort of forcing people to go through certain um, activities in the congregation, like, you know, one could be as simple as sort of your classical charismatic compulsion to have everyone speak in, quote, tongues, or take part in sort of charismatic events that go on. I mean, I'm talking we had things occur to where people were on the ground going through the motions as if they were in labor with a child. I'm including males in that. Now, that's an extreme example, but uh, the point being there is one of my qualifiers is that if you did not participate in such things, you were eventually relegated to the sort of outer reaches of membership and you weren't trusted in any way. So I would certainly call that a qualifier for being a sort of cult example. Um, and then finally, it was what we experienced as we left. Uh, we weren't the only ones who left in about a month's time, about at least half a dozen families left for different reasons, some the same as us. But after we left, everyone who did leave was demonized. Um, examples were given such as Korah and being swallowed into the earth by the pit that opens up. And anyone that was supposed friends with the people who left were told they couldn't have no contact and so we experienced the loss of every friend that we had. For me, I saw that coming, but my wife did not. So it was very traumatic for her. It was a shock to her system, to be sure. So those, uh, to answer your question, those would be some of the reasons I would call it a cult, amongst others. Sure. 
Yes, it does remind me of those disconnection policies that you get with certain groups. Um, while you were speaking there, I was reminded of the Toronto Blessing, which was so-called Toronto Blessing that was going on in the 1990s. And although we didn't experience what you've just said there, there were some things that we did come across that were you know, reminiscent of it. We visited some churches where people would do what was, well, it was called, by those who wish to criticise it, called carpet time, <laughs> where uh, you know people would go up and would start shaking almost on command as it were and you'd notice the same people going up and shaking and I think to myself you know although I you know I was converted into the charismatic movement in the 1980s then 10 years later I'm seeing things where I think well this person is going up each time is this really a move of God or is this learned behavior and they, they feel they've got to get up there and do their carpet time and shake and we were really quite disturbed by some of the things that we saw going on there that was in Sheffield here in the UK and our pastor, Peter Fennick, was very, very concerned. He was leading the Central House Church there, and they were charismatic, but they decided that because of what was going on with the so-called Toronto Blessing, they were going to do a kind of audit of teaching in the church, and they held back on the gifts of the Spirit for a while so they could you know, reassess what was going on. So it, you know, we did sort of brush up against that kind of thing, and we heard reports of people you know, barking like dogs and slithering along the ground like snakes, and so you know, we didn't get involved with it, but we did brush up against it a little. Wow, I had no idea that had really sort of grown over there as well. But yes, I've I've seen and experienced those sorts of things for sure. And a lot of, I think a lot of this does go back to Toronto as well as um, Brownsville in Florida, which is another one that's often cited as sort of the model for these supposed revivals. We were often presented with that as the example of what we should aspire to. Wow. Of course, all of that was contingent upon our own holiness, which, of course, depended upon our sort of almost expecting to have a sinless life. Oh, I see. Because the other doctrine that was majorly pushed there was this idea, though he would never, our former rabbi, he would never explicitly say certain things. He had a military background, so I think he practiced the doctrine of plausible deniability and not making commitable statements. But right. he would always um, sort of reinforce this notion into us that we had to essentially secure our salvation and all that implies. So was this the idea then that you had to get your life right with God so that God would then use you? Is that the kind of idea? Well, that was part of it. But also there was always this idea that you would lose your salvation and that you had to maintain it. Now, mind you, I have the viewpoint now that I believe that's entirely accomplished by Yeshua, by Jesus. And he knew all the sins I would commit tomorrow just as much as he knew the ones I've already committed. Yeah, I agree with you. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't aspire to no. being as sinless as we can in this life, but none of that gains any security for us. We're not earning it. Well, Paul says similar things, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> Does this mean that I should therefore sin as much as I like? No, of course not. So the whole way that's constructed means that we have indeed been saved by what Jesus has done, and he's given us freedom. But uh, we're supposed to live by the Spirit, to live the way he wants us to live. But uh, that is through the power that he gives us to do that, not something that we achieve on our own merit and then offer up to God and say, look, I'm good enough, aren't I? <laughs> Absolutely. And where I formerly was at in that congregation, I literally would go through every day worried about losing my salvation and worried about failing God and not being used by him. Yeah. Of course, that is very common in a sort of cult environment. 
One of the things you said in your presentation which sparked my interest was that the congregation was very resistant to any of your uh, investigations into matters conspiratorial. <laughs> um, I mean, I think a lot of churches are, but I got the impression they were particularly that way inclined. They didn't really want to listen to any of the concerns that you had. Do you want to tell us you know, wh- why that was so exaggerated in your context? Well, uh, I'll start by saying that I was a person, and I still am, who believes that the whole story of 9-11 that we've been given is not true. And I had research and, and different things that told me that. And when I went into this congregation, um, in a short amount of time, I realized that those sorts of ideas would not be embraced at all. They had the typical sort of view that the story we were told is exactly what happened and we need to go and bomb all these Muslim countries. But I think part of it was due to the fact that most all of leadership was former military and that's no condemnation of military. I think there are many men in the military that deserve our thanks, but it did certainly shape their worldview. But also when you get into the sort of NAR dominionist teachings, they all tend to favor that worldview, that right-wing company-line worldview. And at the same time, they will embrace sort of conspiracy theories that go against their opponents. So if there's a conspiracy theory that involves, in America, the Democratic Party, they'll latch on to that. (laughs) <laughs> but if it involves anybody in the yeah, Republican yeah. Party, that's oh, that's a lie. <laughs> it's interesting you say that because Charles Pigden, the uh, New Zealand philosopher, actually wrote quite a famous paper about that kind of issue where, you know, from your own country's perspective, oh, no, there couldn't be any conspiracy involving your own government. But people are pretty much quite happy to believe that conspiracies happen with respect to governments and countries that you haven't got good relations with. <laughs> um, so it's an interesting double standard there. Certainly. And I mean, well, it's like today now, um, because of the uh, leaks from the hacks on uh, the DNC's emails, mm. you know, they're now propagating this idea that it's a Russian conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. That's really easy to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Straight down the line. Um, and you said um, NAR there. So this is the new apostolic reformation, which we've already Correct. mentioned. We're going to talk a little bit more about that now. So, I mean, how did your, I mean, when you went into this congregation, were they already well into that NAR scene or was this something that grew while you were there? Well, I had absolutely no awareness of the existence of this at all. I, as I had pointed to earlier, I came in as a non-believer. My third visit there, I accepted Yeshua, Jesus, as my Messiah and committed to him. Early on, I would say they probably had some interest in some of the teachings, but it was never visibly pushed. The rabbi there was obsessed with this notion that There needed to be revival in America, which, of course, any person would love to see that sort of thing. But he also was convinced that he was explicitly called by God to bring it about. He claims to have encountered God in a physically manifested sort of way while he was serving on a sub in the Navy. And that's when God told him he was Jewish, and that's when he gave him the supposed mandate to save America. So as we were there over the first couple of years, there was this push that became more and more vocal for that sort of thing. And one of the things was focused upon Jamestown here in Virginia, which, as you may know, is the real first colony 
established by the uh, Virginia company. And we were told this was sort of this gathering of believers in Jamestown back in the 1600s who were praying for the same thing that we were always talking about, which was this belief that Jews and Gentiles were prophesied to come together in the sort of end days. And that was sort of based upon uh, the references in the Bible to one new man. It's actually a very common teaching these days. It's become more common, this one new man concept. And certainly I think that in God's eyes, Jew and Gentile are one. We're, we're indistinguishable. We're both saved by him. And I do think, obviously, he would want us to sort of be one family in the body. But what you extrapolate out of that is a whole nother thing. And the thing that was going on in our place was this push toward this sort of ecumenism. And over time, it became the central focus. That's when we started hearing these things about prophets. That Well, these prophets have said this, and these this prophet uh-huh. said that. And... At first, in my naivety, I thought he was referring to the biblical prophets. Yeah, and right. I started yeah, sure. looking things up, and I thought, well, where's that at? <laughs> and then I came to realize he was referring to a lot of the people you would, at that time, we're talking 2005 to 2007. At that time, these people that I eventually realized he was referring to were people that you commonly find on sources such as what was called the Elijah List. I'm not sure if that still exists today. It was a... Um, It was one of those sort of email lists that became very big in the late 90s and early 2000s. And it was this, well, it was a mouthpiece for the NAR types, the major leaders in that movement. So these are people who have declared themselves, or they, as far as they're concerned, they believe that God has declared them to be end-time apostles and prophets. Is that right? Yes, and it's very much a sort of hierarchical structure where people are deemed prophets and apostles by those who already are prophets and apostles. And they are the only ones who can, of course, decide who is or who is not. And they're not part of a pre-existing denomination. This is where the ecumenism business comes in. They They claim to be above all denominational tags whatsoever. They are the real apostles and prophets who can speak to the whole church across any divide. Is that the idea? Yes. Um, it's a very loose network. You're not going to find a person out there that has a sort of title that says they're a member of the NAR. And right. yes, they claim to essentially be restoring to the body what has been lost from ancient times, from the time of Yeshua backwards. Okay, yeah. Well, we're going to delve then into this NAR business in a big way now. There's one just last thing I wanted to ask you about. When you were mentioning the sort of connection with politics, I wondered whether you chime with a particular documentary that I think is absolutely excellent, which was actually shown on the BBC quite rather remarkably in the early 2000s by uh, Adam Curtis called The Power of Nightmares. I don't know whether you've seen it, but I mean, in there, the documentary talks about how the neocons had very deliberately set about wooing conservative Christians in the US in the latter quarter of the 20th century, um, particularly during the the Bush years, um, to sort of magnify a consciousness of civic religion in the US, a kind of um, quasi-US Christian exceptionalism. I mean, are you aware of that kind of ethos in the NIR scene? Oh, absolutely. And I'm not familiar with that documentary, though I will have to look it up. I've seen that time and time again. 
the NAR and other movements of the same ilk, they all promote this sort of patriotic fervor that at the same time, as you said, you see the neocons in America appealing to. And, you know, I don't know whether it's the chicken or the egg in that situation, <laughs> but they certainly pose themselves as these Christian champions, the neocon types in America, just like Bush did. Never mind that when he got out, his wife came out um, wholeheartedly supporting abortion and he made statements about all paths are valid paths to God. And never mind that. He's a great Christian and we should follow him. Yeah. But <laughs> I've got a little anecdote here. I don't know whether it's right. My memory may not serve me correctly on this, but I believe I heard on Dr. Stan Monteith's show, he said that Bush had claimed that he had a long conversation with Billy Graham on the beach or something, uh, you know, around the time when he was converted or perhaps Billy Graham was instrumental in his conversion or whatever. And that then uh, Billy Graham in later years had no knowledge of this conversation. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't know. That was just an anecdote there which, uh, having heard that, at least it put a question mark in my mind as to whether Bush really believes at all or whether it's just part of the big noble lie, to uh, quote the neocon political philosopher Leo Strauss. Um, I mean, as far as this documentary is concerned, that's what is claimed there, that the neocons were inspired by Leo Strauss and thought, well, you know, one big noble lie to unite the nation is, of course, to bring, you know, the conservative Christians on board and maybe there's something to that. Well, I would say there's certainly evidence for that. And I mean, I'm one of the opinion that the New Apostolic Reformation and Dominionism as a whole, I believe it certainly is being used by those powers that be to get, as you said, the body of believers in America behind them, at least those who who have that sort of conservative worldview. And they certainly prey upon it. And I mean, when you walk into a church and you've got the American flag up there on the stage, to me, that's a bit of a problem. I mean, you know, some places, they even have people say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, which if they did their research, they would realize the man who created that was actually a communist. (laughs) And this was pre-World War II breaking out. And the original way you pledged your allegiance was you raised your arm up with your palm down. Right. That sounds familiar. And after World War II started, they changed it and had us place it over our hearts. It's one of those funny examples, though, here in America that Christians have rallied around saying that, oh, they've they've struck down the Pledge of Allegiance in schools and all that and see how anti-Christian they are. But it's like you have to say, well, which God are we talking about here when we say this sort of thing? And where in the Bible does it tell us to do this thing? Mm. Yeah, I find this whole scene actually really disturbing because I think, you know, the message that it gives to the world, you know, is that there is this deep connection between Christianity and the state. And I just don't see that myself. Um, And it really worries me, especially when you see the state doing such evil. And then Christians are sort of blinded to what's going on because of this belief in government's exceptionalism. And that really worries me. You know, people can see this and I worry that the church is suffering from that um, in in all sorts of ways, really. I came across um, one of the people you mentioned, I think it might be one of the Kansas City prophets or come out of that scene, a guy called Bob Jones, who I don't think is with us anymore. But uh, I went to his website and there are some messages Um, It's a bit ambiguous as to whether they're all from him or not. Anyway, they're on his website. And one here is called uh, New Apostolic Government in Place by 2012. (laughs) Um, And God is not disappointed in you. And, you know, he does feel very much like the kind of thing we've just been talking about here, where there's this 
I think it's a prophecy saying, this is back in, I think, 2008, 2009, saying there will be this new apostolic government by 2012. Well, obviously, it's a false prophecy. And it says here, um, these apostles will speak to the nations and cause a shift in the natural and the spiritual. Revival will break out and new regions will be changed as the Lord establishes new governmental order. This is not a man thing. This is a God thing. We will see an entirely new apostolic government in place by 2012, the coming election. And the angel named Union right now is it is extremely important to pray for the coming election. The winds of change are blowing. We must pray for this godly vice president. Uh, by 2012, we will see a genuine apostolic government in place. So I can imagine the neocons would absolutely love this kind of thing. <laughs> For sure. And it's very amazing that you read that because that was one of the things that was circulated around in our congregation. Quite often, those sorts of supposed prophecies were circulated around for everyone to read and, well, you know, ultimately embrace. Another one of the outlets for those people, the Sid Roth show. Sid Roth is a Messianic Jew who very much promotes all of these big, notable people in the, in the NAR. Sid Roth actually was the one who brought Todd Bentley onto the scene. But he had a guest on around the time, right before Obama got elected in America, who claimed that we were going to have a godly man installed as our president and that there was going to be a great exchange of wealth to believers, which I think you could say that was a <laughs> false prophecy. <laughs> so this um, Sid Roth, did he do a show called Supernatural? Yes. I think I've seen that, and I think I turned it off fairly quickly because I wasn't impressed. That's good that you did. He was actually the man who, quote, ordained my former rabbi. Um, he visited our congregation multiple times, although I was only ever there for one of his visits, which is fortunate because I did not have a good feeling from him. He has a background in the New Age, and if you were to look at his current teachings and the things you promote, you have to wonder if he's that far removed from it. Because I think a lot of these practices, which we can or cannot get into, depending on if you desire, they're identical to the sort of New Age teachings and philosophies and practices, just like they're identical to, in my opinion, into many occult practices in general. Well, we may do, actually. We had a conversation with Robert Bowman about that some time ago, actually. So we have covered that sort of um, word faith movement, which does seem very close to that kind of thinking. Um, let's just jump straight in then to these apostles. I mean, you said quite a bit about them, but um, I want to pin down a bit more who they actually are. They have these, they claim to have anyway, these authoritative revelations from God. They claim to do signs and wonders, and I believe that that claim is that these are miracles of New Testament magnitude, or they aspire to that, um, and they're leading what they claim to be a, a new type of Christian who will arise across the globe, known as Joel's army. Um, okay, I think I've got that right anyway. So who exactly are these apostles? Well, I would say the most prominent ones are C. Peter Wagner, Bill Johnson, Mike Bickle, Lou Engel, um, Rick Joyner is another one. And there's numerous other ones, but those are sort of the main ones. C. Peter Wagner is actually the man who is responsible for coining the term New Apostolic Reformation. Previous to that, as you had mentioned earlier, that movement was known as the Kansas City Prophets. And that was started by a man named Paul Kane, who was the right-hand man of a man named William Branham, 
who in the 40s and 50s claimed to be doing all these sorts of signs and wonders and healings and that sort of thing. And the mainstream Pentecostal movement in America officially rejected it as a heresy and labeled him a heretic. And it sort of went underground and it resurfaced via Paul Cain as the Kansas City prophets, which also the Promise Keepers and the organization known as IHOP, not the Pancake Place, but International House of Prayer. Uh-huh. So you could still go to the Pancake Place. You're fine. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've heard of William Branham before. Um, and it's interesting that you say that he was rejected by the Pentecostal movement around that time. And it's very important to keep that in mind because as I said before, you know, I do actually believe in the reality today of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, I'm not saying they don't exist, um, but I think wild claims are made about them and that's the problem. But it wasn't just that he was doing that. He also, I understand that he was also doctrinally off-center as well. I mean, really serious ways. Is it not the case that he denied the Trinity? Yes, and he essentially taught that same teaching that we're hearing today, that we can become little gods. That's a big statement in the Word of Faith movement. And he had a very bizarre obsession with pyramids and that somehow they had God's Word encoded in them and up to the point where on his grave there is a pyramid. Interestingly enough, the man who started the Jehovah's Witnesses also has a pyramid on his grave. Is this a Freemasonry connection, do you think? I want to speculation. That would be speculation on my part. I love to go down those trails of research, but I don't have enough concrete evidence to put that out there. No, 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 unfortunately. Sure. sure. But it certainly sounds like he was uh, into various weird and wacky things. I mean, another thing that I picked up was that he taught some form of the serpent seed doctrine as well. And I've come across that before when talking about Sun Myung Moon of the Moonies. (laughs) This is some sort of idea that Eve in the Garden of Eden had sexual relations with Lucifer. And it's a consequence of that union that, you know, evil gets transmitted down the generations. I mean, this certainly should have alerted people. And it did, didn't it, at the time. The Pentecostals did reject him. But uh, it's surprising that anybody looks back to him as an authority at all. It's very bizarre. And interestingly enough, the Toronto Blessing and people like Todd Bentley revere him as being completely legitimate. Um, Yes, the Serpent Seed Doctrine, I mean, it's a, a bit ridiculous because it supposes that Cain was that descendant. But if Cain's descendants died out in the flood, then how would we have them here today? <laughs> well, there are lots of problems with it. Uh, yeah, I, I really yes. find it quite remarkable. Um, so we have a kind of historical, a very vague historical line from William Branham. Then there was this latter rain movement. I understand there was a 19th century version of this, but then there was a, a more germane to our conversation, a more overtly spiritual and uh, extravagant uh, version of this in the 1940s. And then we've mentioned the Toronto Blessing in the the 1990s, but then the next kind of stepping stone on this journey was something called the Fivefold Ministry Movement. Now, is this the one where C. Peter Wagner and and crew really got going? Yes, that's a very big doctrine promoted by them, along with the Seven Mountain Mandate of Dominionism. Many of these things can trace back to C. Peter Wagner. And incidentally, I had failed to mention as you had mentioned the Joel's Army concept, if you go back to Branham, there is the what he called Manifest Sons of God, or he also called it, very bizarre sounding name, the Many-Membered Man-Child. 
<laughs> right? Um, there's other names that are used like the Joshua generation or the new breed is another term used. I would say Joel's army is sort of the most extreme expression of that concept where they actually talk very literally in military terms and they intend it to be received as literal as well when they talk about certain measures that they would pursue if, you know, certain things come about. So um, would I be right in thinking that the idea of Joel's army is influenced by the manifest sons of God teaching of William Branham? Oh, I think absolutely. It's whether you want to say it's a modern evolution of that or if you want to say it's a rebranding of that, I think it's essentially one and the same. It's this idea that there's going to be this select group who have reached this level of spiritual maturity, this group that has this special knowledge which should be a big red flag right there, that God has decided to raise up. And literally, they talk in terms of them being transformed, literally, physically, into these sort of immortal beings that can feed any opponent. Okay, so that understanding then is in the world as it is now. We're we're talking before Christ returns. We're we're talking before the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. In the world as it is now, the the idea that there will be these manifest sons and daughters of God who will have all these these fantastic, miraculous powers. That's your understanding of what he's teaching anyway. Yes, they have a very much sort of post-millennial view, almost a praetorist view in some cases where they will sort of allegorize the return of Messiah, and they'll say that he's already returned spiritually, therefore the kingdom is already in place. If you call them to the carpet on it, they will sort of say that, oh, well, he's going to literally return too, but we have to set up the kingdom structure for him to return. Okay, so this is, you say, a post-millennial view. So this is the idea that the millennium that we read about in Revelation 20 is something that is this side of the, historically this side of the return of Christ. And we as Christians or these super-Christians need to make the world a fit place for Jesus to return to. Absolutely. They will make statements like, Do you think he's going to return for a tattered, dirty bride, right? Beaten, defeated bride. So we've got to be strong and clean and and, in victory for him to return. Well, this is completely the opposite, because what I was talking to Tom Gailey about, that actually the Bible teaches that there's going to be great difficulties for Christians in future. And we've, you know, we've got to look to God for his protection and encouragement in very, very hard times that are coming. Well, this paints a completely different picture that actually Christianity is going to be victorious and take over the world. And if, you know, that's not true, and I believe that's not true, I don't think the Bible actually teaches that, then this is a very dangerous doctrine, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons, man, I have such a passion for talking about this because those who don't know any better like I did, I had read little of the Bible before I accepted Messiah. And sure, I had done my bits of reading. But as I went into this, my first couple of years, as we were discussing earlier, I wholeheartedly embraced everything. And certain things started coming up that were red flags for me. And at the same time, I was beginning to really dig into my Bible. And as we were being confronted with these teachings and ideas and movements that we were a part of, because 
my former congregation was doing things to try to impact things on a national level. They were involved with groups like Promise Keepers, and my former rabbi was going around the country and doing these, well, what I can't term anything other than rituals in order to somehow bring about this supposed revival. And teaching us that we had we were responsible for that and as you extrapolate out from that that we're responsible for getting israel to accept messiah and that that means we're responsible for getting him to return and if it doesn't happen then it's our faults so you as a believer caught up in this it's very very destructive and for a lot of people it just totally shatters their faith Some people ask me from time to time, how did I maintain my faith and that they're surprised I didn't walk away from God, to which I say, I don't think I'm that great and I'm that wise. It's just I had this simple view that, well, there's God and there's human beings who say they represent him. And I knew at least in my experience that I went through that God did not do any of those things. He wasn't teaching me those things. And so ultimately it was him who got me out. But in the midst of that, it took a lot of painful experiences to get me to that point. And I saw others who did come out of it and still do today who come out just completely broken and some of them rejecting their faith. It's very sad. And uh, of course, the key to this is to hold on to, I mean, doctrine, as I keep saying on the podcast, is, is looked upon as a kind of dirty word, you know, something's doctrinal. It just means teaching. And so the teaching of the Christian faith is absolutely central and needs to be very grounded in scripture. And what really concerns me about looking at somebody like William Branham and this manifestation of the sons of God thing that he talks about, the manifest sons of God, is, is that it's clearly a distortion of the scripture. Um, Let me just uh, show you what I mean. I mean, they've got a little quote here from one of the articles that you flagged up for me. Um, And he seems to be basing what he's saying here on Romans 8, which was written by the Apostle Paul. So this is uh, William Branham speaking here. He's rather ungrammatical, but this is what was said. Tell me, my brother, tell me, my sister, when was the time that the sons of God was ever to be manifested outside of this time now? The nature itself is groaning waiting for the time of manifestation. Now all things has been brought, coming, shaping up to a headstone, to the manifestation of sons of God coming back, and the Spirit of God coming into these men so perfectly until their ministry will be so close to Christ's to little join him and his church together. Now the world and nature is groaning, crying, everything's a-moving, what? For the manifestation of the sons of God, when true sons, born sons, filled sons speak and their word is backed, I believe we're on the border of it right now. So there's the language of the manifestation of the sons of God. The world is groaning, nature is groaning, and he's saying, you know, we're we're just on the, the edge of this fantastic thing that's about to happen. But in Romans, it's very clear that Paul is using that language with respect to the resurrection, which is when Christ returns. So that's not this side of the second coming of Jesus at all. Um, Let me just quote from what Paul writes in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, 
not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. <laughs> There's the context of, of what Paul is saying. The redemption of our bodies is clearly talking about the resurrection, which is not something that's going to be happening in the world as it is now. So William Branham there has taken something right out of context, and he's bringing in the future reality of our resurrection into the world as it is now, and claiming that we're going to be, Christians are going to be walking around as kind of super resurrected beings doing all sorts of fantastic miracles and that is not what the bible claims that is the end state which is as it were at the end of history so you know it's very obvious to me that he was not speaking true doctrine yes i absolutely agree and i think the key point there is context and that is time and time again what i see is Many people get confused by these teachings because they'll say, well, they're quoting the Bible, they're reading from the Bible, they're teaching from the Bible, Absolutely. but yet they're taking a sentence here or a sentence there and they're ripping it out of context and applying their own meanings to it. They practice eisegesis rather than exegesis. Yes. And people like I once was, well, you don't know any better. I always said to myself when I doubted these things that, well, why do I know these men, they've been believers for a very long time and I shouldn't question them because, you know, we also got taught things like fixation upon authority and not questioning authority. And right. they would take Romans out of context when Paul talks about being respectful of authority, that God has ordained that authority. Well, they rip that out of context and they will say that all authority, you know, you're supposed to follow everything they command which if you were to apply that literally, that means that we were supposed to follow Hitler, you know. The Nazis did use that. Yes. They latched onto that, Romans 13, absolutely. But if you look at the context, again, you, this is the point you're making about context. If you clearly look at the context, the assumption that Paul makes there is that the governmental authorities are doing the will of God. <laughs> yes, that, that's the whole central uh, crux of the matter, isn't it? It is. If they're yeah, following yeah. the will of God. I was just thinking, um, would you like me to lay out a little bit more of how I got down that trail that led me to conclude that these teachings were false? There's a bit more to the experience that led me to that point. Uh, yeah, I've got more questions to ask you about the NAR, but we can come back to that. Yeah, so do, please, tell us about it. Well, I think it does flow right into that because I had been listening to podcasts since early on as a believer. And I was hearing people talk about this group, about these teachings, but in being called up in it, I had this sort of dualistic thing occurring in my mind where on one hand I said, wow, this makes sense, but these people, maybe they aren't spiritually mature enough to see it. They haven't experienced it. Now, that's a key phrase, experience. That's what much of this is centered around. So I had these things sort of calling to question what I was embracing. And as time went on, the movement that we were engaged in was this, again, this quest for revival. And we were going out to Jamestown doing all these sort of prayer marches and prayer circles and anointing oil going around the place and using shofars. Uh, shofar is the ram's horn that 
in traditional Judaism, it's only used one day out of the year on Yom Kippur. Yet we were using it all the time. We were told it was this great weapon of spiritual warfare that the enemy had to flee when you use this. This is sort of a geographical cleansing of evil power, is it? Yes, and it was a sort of attempt to somehow open this door for God to come through. And there was this teaching that we were being fed. It was scripture taken out of context once again. It was Ezekiel's vision of the temple and God's presence coming in through one gate and leaving out through another. And our former rabbi had this entire teaching. It's now actually gone national. Um, He put a book out actually promoting it. And I've seen other people saying the same sort of teaching that somehow that there are these spiritual gateways in countries, right? And there's an east gate and a north gate and a south gate and a west gate. And God's presence has to come in through the east gate. So for us, that was supposed to be Jamestown. And because it was the root of America and because they were saying this prayer there every day that supposedly included people who were all believers that purely had the motivation of somehow bringing about a revival themselves, then that meant that we are supposed to sort of be the finishers of this great task. And so we were going out here doing all these things and had events staged to sort of try to bring about this reconciliation between different denominations and all that. I mean, we had this sort of phrase thrown at us, as is often done in these circles, of we can leave doctrine at the door. We need to save the country first. So finally, what occurred was that we went through all these motions, and guess what? No fire fell from the sky. No great revival happened. There was no coming together of all these believers to restore America to what it's supposed to be. None of that. But that was just because you didn't do it right, I guess. Well, that is sort of what began to transpire. And this is where we get into the phase of when I actually started to question things. Because though I had already started to question things in my mind, I would not commit myself to sort of crossing a boundary of doubt. Because none of this happened, I began to see sort of frustration in leadership, our former rabbi specifically, and these statements and teachings started coming out about holiness and and failing God and sins in the camp, God's not going to be there, and all these sorts of things, right? So he had gone to another state to a congregation where a supposed revival had been happening for a year straight. And all these things seem to be happening there, these manifestations, the sorts of things you hear about, glory clouds and all that. I don't know any more about it to make a judgment call on it, though it's a red flag for me when you talk about these manifestations. But that was sort of lifted up and presented to us one particular night as this thing that we should be aspiring to. And the implication was that we had failed. So this was in 2008. And this is when I really started seeing this sort of control come in, this sort of hard push toward control. Now, me and my wife, we were involved in multiple ministries. It began with the media ministry there, and it moved on to security. I actually went through very many levels of training because we had this whole structure in place, several people who were you know, members of the security team, and some of us were armed. And don't get me wrong, when I say that, I do want to say there are legitimate reasons in some places, in some context, to have 
a certain level of protection. I mean, uh, Messianic synagogues in particular get a lot of threats from, say, Muslim sources, white supremacist sources, those sorts of things. And I do think it's wise to protect your congregants. But there's a certain boundary you could cross where you go beyond the pale, as it were, and it becomes something that should not to be. And, and I think that was the case in ours. Um, I'm just visualizing somebody standing there with a man pad, but I didn't go that extreme, presumably. <laughs> with a what? <laughs> a man pad. I'm just thinking of, you know, artillery, but there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it became this, it definitely became a control mechanism. I mean, it got to the point where we were instructed to listen to conversations as they occurred to shut down certain conversations. Um, if people were, say, not sanctioned to come up and do certain things during worship, we were told to pull them back. Um, we had a what was termed a Davidic dance team. Um, that's quite often a thing that you see in Messianic congregations, dance worship team that's sort of structured around psalms and things like that. Sure. And my wife was a member of that, too. And um, anytime anyone else tried to come up during that time, that was another thing we were told to shut down. These are just various examples of how that sort of went out of hand. But as this sort of failure to have a revival happened and this sort of push towards control came in, I saw from my perspective being in security this face of it that many others didn't see, right? Because I was one of those being told, hey, you need to take control. You need to do certain things. And the summer of 2008, we had this thing come on the scene called the Lakeland Revival with a man named Todd Bentley, who, as I had mentioned earlier, Sid Roth had brought onto the stage, so to speak, a few months previous to that. Our former rabbi had gone down to Lakeland, Florida, where this was occurring, and he came back and told us, this is 100% a move of God. It's legitimate. And Essentially that we all should embrace it as being such because he had given his official binnacle seal of approval on it. So that Todd Bentley had? Yes. Right. Okay. And it was being broadcast on an internet streaming service called God TV every night of the week. And we were strongly encouraged to watch it. And, you know, the notion was that just watching it, you were participating in it and you could experience a miracle too, right? Uh Uh-huh. Now, mind you, I was still caught up in a lot of the deception to the point where I thought I had experienced something during this. I was open to that. Hmm. So as that summer went on, I want to say we reached July of 2008, and Todd Bentley began traveling around the states to, quote, spread the fire, his supposed anointing, to anyone who would desire to have it. And we were told by our rabbi that, hey, Todd Bentley is going to appear at this location in North Carolina and that several of us should go down there for the sake of the congregation to get this fire so we can experience this supposed move of God as well. So me and several others went down on the congregation's bus to that location and Immediately upon entering the building, I felt this tangible feeling of hostility. It was very odd. I could feel it almost in the air, as they say, and I even felt it myself. And I thought at the time, wow, okay, this is the enemy, and he's trying to keep me from getting what God wants me to get. Hostility towards you specifically, do you mean? I felt it towards me, but then I began feeling it towards other people, and it was very odd. I didn't walk up to the building feeling that way. 
as we go in this building, very quickly, I want to say within 30 seconds, everybody got split up. It was like sheep getting scattered. I purposefully use that term because I literally think it does fit that sort of biblical concept. We had no shepherd there. As I wander around this building looking for my friends, I realize, okay, I need to just give up. I'm not going to find them, and I need to fulfill this duty that I have to receive this thing that I thought God wanted me to receive. So I go down onto the main sort of floor where everyone's gathered, and very quickly I started feeling very, very physically ill. I started having pains in my body. I mean, just these random pains all over my body, and I – I wanted to go and collapse in the back of this room and just get away from everything. But I was committed to, you know, fulfilling what I was told to do and not letting God down. Right. Yeah. So I stayed there the whole time. And Todd Bentley did his whole routine that if you've ever seen any of the videos is very bizarre. I mean, he's knocking people around. He didn't do some of the extreme things. I mean, this guy during this supposed revival in Lakeland, Florida, he was kicking people in the stomach, tackling them, all these bizarre things, and claiming that God was guiding him to do this, well, specifically the Holy Spirit. Mm. So he goes through his sort of dog and pony show, as it were, and at the end, he does this call for anyone who wants to receive the fire. He just loved the term fire, to come up and get it. And so all of these people line up around this building and it's sort of the serpentine line wrapping around and working its way through this building. And me and a few others went up. We get up there and I literally walk through this sort of tunnel of people that are on both sides of me, you know, doing all this sort of what is presented as speaking in tongues and all these sort of bizarre sort of physical uh, movements and shaking swaying and all that sort of stuff and get up and he's at the end of this line and literally the man put his hands on me and I felt this very intense burning sensation. It did not feel comfortable, but again, I was convinced this is of God and if I perceive it as being weird or strange or even unpleasant, that just means I can't really quite get all the things of God, right? So I'll leave this building get back on the bus and it was like a six hour trip back and I felt very, very intensely sick the whole time. Get back home and I told my wife about everything and it was, should have been a warning to me at the time. She didn't seem too enthusiastic about what I was telling her. Yet I continued on trying to convince her that this is good, this is of God and we need to get in line. And she jumped on board because she was pretty much in the same place as me as far as embracing everything she was being told and just being obedient. And so we returned the following night to our former congregation. Immediately, we got raised to the ministry of being on the prayer team because we had done this, and we were told to spread this fire, have all these people come up in this altar call and lay our hands on them. And so we did that, continued to experience these bizarre things going on in the congregation. We started having evenings of service that began with an hour and a half of worship, you know, a lot of that was just sort of repeated phrases over and over and over again. And then we would not even have a message sometimes or a teaching. It would just go into this whole sort of experientially driven sort of thing where you had people doing things like 
for example, being on the floor, acting as if they're in labor, people shaking, people convulsing, all those sorts of things, people running around in circles around the building. And that's when I really started feeling uncomfortable. In the midst of that, I had been one of the people that had responded to this push by the rabbi to begin coming before service and preparing the building for for the service. And we're talking in spiritual terms, like go around the building and pray, go around the building and anoint it, you know, spend time worshiping, those sorts of things. And in doing that, one day I sat down and I opened my Bible. I just felt led to do that. And I opened it up to Revelation, specifically chapters 12 and 13, where he's having this vision of the woman who rides the beast and all of the iniquities that come out of her cup and all these things, right? And I had this thought hit me that I had never had before. To this day, I 100% believe it was God. That, wow, what I am seeing before me is a part of that. That it could very well be one of the things that lead to that. That woman, that one world religion. I didn't do anything with that at the time. I sort of said, wow, I don't know what to do with this God. (laughs) And a few more weeks went by. And... In the midst of that time, I was experiencing all these temptations arise in my life that I had not experienced since being saved. And me and my wife were seeming to argue a lot, and we seemed very distant from each other. This in the context of us now being on the prayer team, right? And I didn't really know what was going on other than to chalk it up to, okay, well, I'm being attacked by the enemy, and he's trying to pollute me so that I can't be used for God, right? And... We had this event occur in Lakeland because, again, we were watching this every night where you had all these big leaders in the NAR movement, see Peter Wagner and all those guys come to Lakeland and they go on the stage and they pronounce these supposed prophecies over Todd Bentley stating that he was going to be the next great general in this movement, that he was going to bring about national revival and all these different things accompanied by the usual bizarre physical behaviors, some of them shaking and convulsing and those sorts of things as they're saying it. And I was watching it and I very much had this sort of cognitive dissonance because I had already come to realize that those people weren't what we call kosher. But I had not established a connection between the things I was being taught so much and those people. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know about this whole thing. And about a week or two later, I want to say, ABC television did an expose on Todd Bentley, questioning whether the supposed 200 plus people being raised from the dead and the thousands of people he claimed to be healed from things varying from being quadriplegic to being blind to everything else, whether any of those things were legit. And they they actually attempted to interview him. And I sit there and I watch this man stutter and bumble through this thing. And he could not come up with any bit of evidence whatsoever and no names, no phone numbers, nothing to say, hey, these were real people that I'm claiming were healed. And about a week after that, suddenly this thing had stopped broadcasting and it seemed to be over with. And in a few short days later, we found out it had ended because Todd Bentley had confessed to cheating on his wife the entire time with another woman there. 
and that he had been drunk almost every night of the supposed revival. And on, upon hearing that, what I had been experiencing made complete sense to me. Yeah, so cool. I mm. am of the opinion to this day that after having that man lay his hands on me, I did indeed receive something, but it wasn't an anointing from God. It was the things that Todd Bentley was, for lack of better terms, demonized by. I was experiencing this separation from my wife. I was experiencing this temptation to look at other women. So at that point, that's when I realized I had to make a decision because, mind you, my former rabbi was still defending Todd Bentley in this revival as being legitimate. Of course, it was because he had already endorsed it and he couldn't back down from that which he claimed God had revealed to him to, as being legit. So I began at that point thinking there was hope that I could reach out to my former rabbi that maybe he just didn't see the truth, that he didn't know that this NAR movement, that dominionism was behind these things he had been embracing. And I began, you know, occasionally shooting questions to him. Hey, do you agree with this teaching? Do you agree with that teaching? Do you agree with people claiming to be, as I call it, a capital A apostle or a capital P prophet, people who would say they have the biblical office on the same level as the disciples, right? Or the biblical prophets. And he would flatly say, no, I don't agree with that. That's not right. And he also said he disagreed with the concept of dominionism and that sort of thing. And we just sort of had these exchanges occasionally from time to time. And all the while I was still seeing a lot of these things being promoted within this congregation. At this point we're 2009, 2010, and we had gone through, yet again, more of these sorts of national attempts at bringing about revival. We had gone out to Colorado to take part in this big Promise Keepers event, which, interestingly enough, the stories you hear about Denver International Airport, they're very true. <laughs> the mural and all that, if you've ever seen that, it's very, very uh, striking and very disturbing. But Yeah, that actually rings a bell with me. Uh, I may have seen that. What is that precisely? Uh, well, there's this mural in Denver International Airport that seems to depict this globalist plan for eugenics and genocide and subjugation of the entire population. It even uh -huh, has yeah. a figure that looks like a Nazi standing over a group of people, including children that are in coffins, one of them Jewish, one of them Native American, and one of them African American. And it almost seems it's like it's the globalists sort of visibly throwing out their plan to the masses because they don't think the masses can really grasp it. It's very bizarre for you or the listeners. If you haven't seen it, look it up. Yeah. But, I think I'm, I, it rings a bell, actually. A I think I may have come across it. I think I may have seen it. Well, there's a lot of theories concerning that airport. And there's a lot of interesting activity in that area, um, covens and that sort of thing. So it seems to be a focal point for strange activity. I'm not sure why, but anyway, it's not so much germane to the conversation. <laughs> no, no, no matter. So you were still involved in this prayer attempt to bring about revival? Yes, and this was in 2009. And around that time, me and my wife started re-experiencing a lot of problems in our marriage. We were literally quite often arguing right after leaving services like she was shooting these sort of accusations and condemnations at me, like, hey, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, within the congregation, that sort of thing. As time went on, my wife confessed to me that the rabbi's wife, 
who she was very close to that one particular night, they were at a dance team function at a dinner and the rabbi's wife had verbally attacked me. It infuriated me when she told me this and it made everything make perfect sense. I thought, wow, okay, this is where all these criticisms are coming from. We were constantly questioned and badgered about our marital situation and the fact that we didn't have a child. We had sort of decided we weren't going to try to. Neither one of us felt sort of financially ready for that, nor did we really quite feel ready in other sure, ways. your decision, absolutely. You know, it's just as far as being mature adults. I mean, we had been questioned about this. Now, my mother lived with us. Um, my dad had passed away 17 years ago, and I promised to him saying I would take care of my mother. She's not going to be alone. Obviously, that's a bit of a stressor in a marriage having a mother live with you, but it's something well, you accept. Yeah. But we were constantly questioned about that up to the point where we were told, not only do you need to have a child, but you need to separate from your mother because the Bible says a man will separate from his mother and father and cleave to his wife, which is completely out of context. So this would be what is often referred to as heavy shepherding, where the leadership is actually intruding into the details of people's lives uh, to the extent that they're saying where you should live, who you should marry, this kind of level of intrusion. Yes. And and, and we weren't the only ones. Almost any family that was very involved in the congregation was. I mean, to a certain degree, if you were to even approach them with the desire to get involved in any ministry, that was the moment where they began enacting controlling measures on you. They would tell you you need to do certain things. You had to you know, do these things in your homes. And I was even told, as far as my mother was concerned, that maybe I need to just allow her to move into a nursing home. My mother then was in her early 60s. She's in no way, she's 73 now. She's nowhere to the point of needing to go into a nursing home. She still lives with us, by the way, and she will as long as she needs to. I mean, traditionally for human beings up until our modern era, families stay together. That's the norm. Yes, it is yes. a biblical norm, so it's very bizarre exactly. that they would be opposed to that. Yes, I was thinking just the same thing. Yes, it's surprising. It's really topsy-turvy, exactly. That was the criticism that his wife had laid against me in this conversation that she had at this dinner. And I was livid, but I didn't know what to do about it. You know, I knew biblically I needed to take it to her and tell her, hey, I believe what you're doing. It's a bit of a sin, and I want us to, you know, make amends here, right? I knew I needed to do that. But I sort of delayed doing it. I knew they had some things going on in their family and there was some stress and I didn't want to give them any undue stress. I was still committed to this congregation. I still had hope for things, even though I knew, okay, they're embracing these teachings and this Todd Bentley thing isn't right, but hopefully he'll see the light one day, right? So that's where we were at. And this was the summer of 2010. And Then we received the announcement that the worship leader for Todd Bentley was going to be coming to our congregation in this weekend event, and it was one of those supposed revival events where we were bringing in this worship leader of Todd Bentley's. Well, as I had said, I had been posing questions to my former rabbi, hey, do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? To which he flatly denied being in agreement with them. All the while, he was still promoting a lot of the teachings. So do you think actually that was some of the source of the criticism against you, coming from him through his wife? 
It could have been, but I do think most of it was specifically her. And I think a lot of those teachings were introduced to him from her. And that's the point in our conversation where Mike and I lost contact. For some reason or other, the Skype connection was lost and we had tremendous difficulty for quite a long time trying to reconnect the call. But as it happens, Mike didn't know that the connection had failed, so he just kept on talking and sharing with us his testimony. And he was also recording it, so all that was necessary was for him to send me the file and I was able to edit that in. So what he had to say continues here now, and you will hear that moment where he suddenly realises that I'm not there anymore, uh, which is quite amusing. Anyway, we'll carry on now with what Mike has to say, and of course this is the part of the conversation that I actually had to listen to afterwards and uh, edit in. Um, so this worship leader was coming and I'd been posing these questions to my former rabbi. And so I posed the question to him. I'd sent him an email one day and I said, Hey, you know, these things we've been talking about, I'm still very concerned about them and I would like to sort of get in more in depth about them. But the, one of the things that's on my mind right now is I'm wondering if you know that this guy who's coming, Rick Pino is partnered with these people that he has a relationship with them and the response i got was silence i got no response and so immediately i knew okay i've stepped on some toes here there's a problem here there's something that's going to come out of this and so that weekend we were going as per our usual pattern me and my wife to the building to prepare the building for service we always arrived a couple hours earlier I had ceased doing what I had been doing and going in and praying in the sanctuary for like three hours. Oh, that's a whole nother dynamic I left out. We were engaging in a lot of these prayer practices that you hear about, like contemplative prayer and soaking prayer and visions and uh, wild sort of experiential things that occur during these sorts of supposed prayer meetings. And around the beginning of that year, I had just felt like I can't do this anymore. I don't feel like it's right. Now, I remained silent about it. I didn't say anything about it. I just ceased going. So anyways, we had arrived at the building and we were preparing things. And immediately as I entered the building, I felt this sort of tangible hostility that felt very familiar to me. It felt like the feeling I felt when I went to North Carolina to that Todd Bentley event. And I thought to myself, that's very interesting. Hmm. Well, as the night went on, I was in the hall and having various conversations now um, in my capacity as, quote, armor bearer for my rabbi. I always sort of maintain close proximity to wherever he was at while giving him enough space to do what he needs to do and have privacy. And he had been in his office, so I was maintaining presence outside in the hallway and having, you know, light conversations with different people, saying hello, that sort of thing. And one of the former elders in the congregation who, unbeknownst to me, quite a long time before that had stepped down from any sort of official duties in the congregation. This elder had a very close relationship with the rabbi. They, he was one of the maybe half dozen people who had started the congregation. Well, it turned out he had a massive problem with Todd Bentley in the embracing of that. And as a consequence, they had fallen out in their friendship and he stepped down while maintaining a quiet approach to that. Um, he didn't want to stir anything up in the congregation, understandably so. 
anyways, me and him were talking in the hallway and we were talking about a lot of the NAR sorts of things. And I knew he didn't approve of those things. So it was, it was always comforting to be able to talk to him because I knew, Hey, we are in agreement on this and we can talk about these things and try to understand them and figure out what, if anything, we were to do about them. Well, anyways, we were just sort of having a quick conversation in the hall about these sorts of things. And, um, he had made the comment about how quite often they use worship almost in a manipulative way. They use it almost, I describe it in terms now almost as witchcraft. And as far as if you define witchcraft as being this attempt to do A plus B to get God to do C, there's this huge emphasis if we go through these certain actions and these certain styles of worship that somehow we're going to compel God to do something which to me is the same as witchcraft. But anyways, we were having this sort of conversation. I shouldn't say light conversation because that's not at all a light conversation. But we were talking about this, and this was like a five-minute or less conversation. I noticed as we were talking, the rabbi's wife passed by me and cast a gaze directly at me that felt very hostile. And a few short moments later, one of the other elders came out of the office and said, hey, rabbi wants to talk to you. So I go in and he proceeds to tell me that I'm out in the hall trash talking Rick Pino and questioning their judgment. And I said, what? And he said, you know what I'm talking about. Someone heard you. And I said, no, these are the points of the conversation. This is what we were talking about. Yada, yada, yada. He seemed as if he accepted that, and I go up to my usual position in the congregation while he goes up to do teaching, and the teaching turned into this very passionate attack against those who would uh, rebel in a congregation and question the judgment of leadership and that sort of thing. And all the while, I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I'm feeling as if this is directed toward me, and out of the corner of my eye, I see the rabbi's wife glaring at me every once in a while. And nodding her head, like grinning, like, yeah, he's talking about you. And I just felt obviously extraordinarily uncomfortable and just really wanting the evening to end. And as the evening did end, I had noticed her talking to my wife and felt a bit uncomfortable about that, wondered what was being said. And as we headed home, me and my wife began arguing. My wife told me that you've been going around the congregation and saying some things that aren't right. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, you know what I'm talking about. And I said, no, you need to tell me what I'm talking about. And she said, well, you're questioning their judgment. And I said, who told you that? And she said, I can't tell you. Why can't you tell me? She's like, I can't. I promise not to say anything. And I immediately, I knew who it was. So as I had gone in another room and was thinking about things and sort of quite upset and praying and just trying to get some peace and figure out what's going on. I went back to my wife and I asked her, I said, did the rabbi's wife say it? And she admitted to me that she did, that she was the one who claimed she heard me saying all these things. So then this sort of became this period of time, about two weeks went by of us trying to figure out what we were going to do. We had committed to participating in this weekend event and I was determined I was going to do it because I'd given my word. And so we went through the motions and By the third evening, I saw uh, the two main people leading this supposed revival were self-professed prophet and apostle who I did some research on them. They had an institute they led where they teach others to be prophets and apostles. I don't know how you do that, but that's what they claimed. And 
we ended up experiencing on that weekend a lot of the same stuff you saw in the Todd Bentley Act supposed revival. Uh, they're on stage shoving people, slapping people, these sort of ecstatic behaviors. Um, I saw the supposed prophetess um, walking around sort of almost like a serpent in her demeanor. And we realized we needed to get out. We need to leave. And that's what we did. And a short time later, we got a meeting with the rabbi and his wife and said, you know, we've got to come to terms with these things here. And I expected to reach an understanding that I had not said the things that I had said, and it was a misunderstanding, but it turned into this sort of attack against me via the rabbi's wife for about 45 minutes. And where she finally admitted that she didn't hear me say these things, but she could somehow read my heart and knew what was in my heart. And I sort of quickly realized that there was no reconciliation going to happen. And we pretty much left that meeting realizing, or I did, that I wasn't going back. And then as me and my wife talked about it, we basically were in total agreement. And we decided that was it. We returned everything that we had from them. And we left and did not go back. And that is how we came to terms with all of that, those things, and came to realize that it was a cult. Are you still there? Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. But, oh, yes, that's the way it turned out. But it didn't matter because uh, I was able to include that in the recording. So let's return now to the interview. And, of course, now I have rejoined and I'm part of the conversation. I was monitoring the teachings coming out of there for about a year afterwards. And he was just obsessed with attacking everyone who had left. And he even did messages just flat out saying he believes in dominionism after oh, having denied it and mm. saying essentially everyone should else also agree with that. <laughs> you know? Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay, so let's just draw this to an end and tie up the strands of this, which are, I think a lot of people will be thinking, well, what's happened to you since? And you've gone to join a different congregation, and presumably you're a lot happier with that. Um, how, how would you contrast your current experience with the past? Well, it took us about a year of healing and that sort of thing to even get to the point of going somewhere else because, you know, it's almost like breaking up from an abusive relationship. Right. So we took our time. We'd even gone away on a trip uh, to get into the wilderness. and But there's not a lot of Messianic congregations around. And I'm certainly not only going to go to a Messianic congregation. That's not a qualifier for me. But there's three in our area. And... The third one is small. It has about 50 people on average, and we decided to visit there. And they're not cessationist, but they are not on the other extreme of a lot of the charismatic expectations either. Okay, so just for people who are not familiar with that terminology, cessationism is the idea that the gifts of the Spirit, so things like healing and the like, those have finished with the end of the New Testament era. But you're saying they're not, they're not saying that? No, they are um, sort of... You know, as I would say it, I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as is often the case with a lot of things. You know, you could sort of go to one extreme or another, but this congregation, it's um, it's small and it's very friendly and it's very um, family-like. And as far as leadership and all those who attend there care for one another and um, 
it's a much healthier place and it's he does a lot of um verse by verse sort of bible teachings and that sort of thing which i've grown to very much appreciate as i've gotten more mature and he doesn't start with a sort of precept and then find biblical verses to back it up. It's more finding biblical verses and then coming up with. (laughs) Right. So indeed, exegetical teaching and preaching rather than, as you said before, eisegetical, where you're reading stuff into what the Bible says. Yeah. Yes. And um, we had started going there in 2011 and, um, you know, had very good experiences. And, you know, in the time since then, my wife's had a lot of health problems and we've been through a lot of things. I didn't realize how much damage I had emotionally from our experience. I sort of shoved it all down, as a lot of us men do. And my wife went through a lot because um, of losing all of the supposed friends we had. And was, so yeah. even yeah. in the place that we started attending, we had a hard time trusting people. And we moved about a year and a half ago to where we're at now, which is, well, it's about a 45-minute drive to that congregation from where we're at now. And um, it's a sad statement because it's very, very hard to find a solid biblical church here today. It's very sad to me. And I mean, that brings me to where the reason why we're doing what we're doing, because I don't want to force my views on anyone, but I want to point out the things I've experienced and others and um, just let people know they're not alone and um, sort of give them warning against some of these things that they can get caught up in. And yeah, yeah. Um, Well, it's really, that's the last thing that I want to ask you before we close. I mean, I, I want to just share something which has come to my mind throughout this whole conversation, of course, reading a few things before it. But um, after I've said just a little thing that I want to say here, I want to ask you, you know, if there's a last word that you want to leave us with, but let me just share with you what occurred to me. And this is that, you know, I'm thinking of people listening to this conversation who are not believers, and they might think, you know, this is true Christianity, what we've been talking about, you know, why not? This is Christianity. And I, you know, I would say that from, you know, an academic point of view, a sociological point of view, then people could describe everything we've been talking about as Christian, you know, um, what is a sociologist supposed to do? But spiritually speaking, a lot of what we've been talking about isn't really Christian thought. You know, there are lots of people involved in this scene who are indeed Christians, but many of these teachings it seems to me, do seriously deviate from biblical teaching. Um, And I think that's the key that I would wish to bring over, is that we have to be clear that what we're following is biblical teaching. We can't just accept what someone says because they say they're a prophet or an apostle or, you know, even if what they say appears to be backed up by apparent supernatural events. We can't just accept them on their authority. We have to check what they teach by what the scriptures clearly say to us what those scriptures really teach and that you know it's going to take a little bit of work but so be it and i also think that doesn't mean that we should reject what you know anybody says who's in a position of authority just because they're a minister or a priest or a pastor or whatever just because they well well you know they're a person in authority we can't accept that just because they have a position you know we can learn from people we can really benefit from people's ministries but whoever we are we have to hold whoever those people are accountable 
to scripture because that is the key because that is the setting down of the experience of people in the past who have followed God who have walked and talked with Jesus or have followed people who have walked and talked with Jesus and God has presided over the whole business of inscripturating those teachings and those experiences and you know anything that's taught today that goes against those that jar with those scriptures well you know how can God be divided against himself so you know we really do have to hold people in authority accountable to the scriptures, to the word of God. So that's what I wanted to bring out of this. Um, But is there anything that you would like to, you know, some short word that you'd like to leave us with, perhaps particularly to people who may be in congregations that are heavily affected by the NR movement and who are perhaps not very happy with what's going on? Is there anything you want to say to them? Yes, certainly. I am talking about this thing and I've actually talked about it on two different shows now. And then of course on my own, we touch on it some. And the reason why is because I want to let people know you're not alone and you're not wrong in questioning these things. God's word says, test all these spirits. We read about Paul talking about the Bereans who, as he taught, they went through their Bibles and looked to see if what he was teaching was actually lining up with what the Bible said. And we have this sort of unique situation, biblically speaking, if we have a 2,000-year disconnect from the laying down of what we would say is the Word of God. And in that 2,000-year time, we have all these different faces of what is presented as Christianity to us, yet those things aren't necessarily Christianity per se, biblically speaking. They may or may not be, and how accurate they may be, well, that depends upon how much they line up with the word, as you said. And I guess I'm equally wanting to speak to unbelievers here because as another person I well respect that you had mentioned earlier, Mike Heiser points out, the sort of common interpretation that we were created in the image of God may not be entirely accurate. It may be better understood to be, as he states, that we were created to be imagers of God, that we are here and as those who have chosen to follow him, who have chosen to accept Yeshua as the Messiah, to reflect him to the world. To those of you who may be listening who don't know him and maybe don't believe anything you've ever heard before because you've seen these people on TV or you've seen these crazy people we're talking about. Yet he has an entirely different image that we are to reflect. And the image is clearly laid out in the New Testament of Yeshua and the words he said and the way he walked. And it didn't involve any of these things that we're seeing. And it's way simpler than we make it. And I would just say to both believers and unbelievers, just sort of lay down all of these things, all of these teachings, all of these sort of official denominational creeds and all of that. And just go back and look at the Bible. Because the picture is very clear. It's very simple. I think we human beings have a tendency to want to overcomplicate things. And as you had asked me moments ago, what do I want to say to people who are in this situation similar to mine? I want to say that there's hope. You're not a rebel if you question things. If your heart is to be obedient to God and to be pure in following his word, then how could you be wrong in questioning everything that you're taught and seeing if it measures up. 
That's exactly what we're supposed to do. The Bible is like a measuring instrument. I'm predisposed to this sort of explanation because I work in an industry building sensors. <laughs> but if you have a measuring device like a sensor, it has to be calibrated. It has to be precise in its measurement of outside forces. And it's the same with the Word of God. It's our measuring device. It's our only measuring device. And if you open up the door, if you're in a situation like I was, and you open up the door to sort of add new things to that understanding via a, quote, prophetic word or not, you need to know that you're now recalibrating that measuring device. You're recalibrating it, presuming that somehow God could not get it accurate enough and maintain its accuracy. I like that image, actually, of the measuring device, because that's the same kind of image behind the idea of the canon, isn't it? The canon of Scripture, yes. the straight line that you check yourself against. And uh, so those are the particular writings that have come in to make up the Bible. They are the canon of Scripture. And I agree that they are the primary resource that God has given to us. And, you know, if there's anything that the... One of the things that the Reformation surely has taught us is that our walk with God is not to be through a cipher provided by someone in authority. We each have access to what God has primarily taught, and we can and we must indeed individually check what's being taught to us, wherever it's coming from. So you're absolutely right. People should not feel bad at all about questioning the situation that they're in. If they're not happy with it, there's something not right with it that God actually wants them to check to make sure that it measures up to the scripture that God has given to us. And I thank you ever so much, Mike, for speaking to us. And one thing I want to check with you is that I presume you would be quite happy for people to get in touch with you if they're in this kind of situation and they, you know, they want some guidance, some advice. Um, how can people get in touch with you? Absolutely. I would love for people to get in touch with me. I've actually been highly encouraged because in the past week I've had numerous people that are, have come out of the same movements and have contacted me and told me that it's meant a lot for them to hear my testimony. So anyways, to answer your question, we do have yeah. a website, www.ftlradio.net, where, of course, you can listen to all the shows and where you can also go to the main menu and go to contact us. But to make things easier, I would also say you could contact me directly at mikehopkins at ftlradio.net. And, of course, you can also find me on Facebook if you just look up my name, Mike Hopkins, or you can look up Fight the Lies Radio on Facebook, and you can also, of course, find me that way. Excellent. Well, thank you very much again for coming on. It's been a delight to speak to you and for sharing so much of your experience and your testimony in the, in the broadest sense. And um, I do encourage people to go and listen to your show, particularly the one, of course, that I, I flagged up, that particular one at TMR, but I don't suppose everybody caught it, the one that you talk about uh, conspiracy theories and the Christian, because it was a very, very interesting presentation you did there. Um, I shall link to that again in the show notes. Encourage people to listen to that. Thanks ever so much, Mike, for coming on. It's been great to speak to you. And I do hope that we can do this again sometime. Oh, me too. Absolutely. And thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Like I said, I'm a longtime listener and I really appreciate the rational, calm view that you bring to the forum because we do have, uh, well, a bit of a lack of that in a lot of ways. So I Thanks, Mike. highly respect what you do. Thank you. Great to speak to you. Thanks for coming on. Uh, tell your wife I said thanks for um, loaning you to me for this time. And <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> please give that message to your wife as well. And I hope she gets over the migraine pretty soon. Oh, thank you. I'll let her know. Well, you take care and God bless. 
and you. God bless. Bye-bye then. Bye.